Well, if you have your Bible, you can make your way over to the book of First Thessalonians as we continue our study through that book. I want to begin by reading 1 Thessalonians 3.12. It says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Like I said, we're continuing a Bible study through the book of 1 Thessalonians today. In the opening chapter of the letter, Paul talked about the beautifully transformed lives of the believers in Thessalonica who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and allowed the Holy Spirit to change their life. In the second chapter, Paul responds to accusations that were being made against him that he's not to be trusted, that he's trying to take advantage of and rip people off of Thessalonica, that He's a fraud, a charlatan, a swindler, preying on the gullible and the weak-minded. He reminded the believers in Thessalonica of his time with them and how he behaved among them. And from his description of his behavior, we were able to identify a number of principles that we can use in our own life for how to use privilege, power, and authority. Here's a quick summary of those principles that we looked at last time. Tell the truth. Don't deceive. Be honest. Operate with pure motives. See your life as on a mission from God. Be a God-pleaser rather than a people-pleaser. Don't use flattery to manipulate people. Beware of greed. Don't use the advantage of privilege, power, and authority to benefit yourself. Instead, use it to help others. Don't just do your job. Share your life. Be an example others can follow. Live by the words you say. Let the Word of God work in your life. And finally, be an encourager. Well, in the last few verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and then through chapter 3, which we will be looking at today, Paul, he continues to defend himself against his critics by explaining why he hasn't returned to the church in Thessalonica yet. Apparently, his critics had not only been making accusations about what his motives were for being in Thessalonica to begin with, but they have also raised questions about why he hasn't come back to Thessalonica Has he taken their money and ran off with it? Is he just a big chicken, afraid of the opposition that he would surely confront if he shows his face in Thessalonica again? Did he only claim to care about the people there, but he doesn't really. He's moved on now and he's forgotten about them. Well, let's set the stage again to remind us of what has transpired leading up to the current situation. I have a map for you this morning. I promised you a couple of weeks ago that I would eventually have a map for you so that you can kind of orient yourself uh, where Thessalonica is in relationship to the rest of the cities in that region. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy, after establishing a new church in the city of Philippi, they left there and they traveled westward deeper into the province of Macedonia, some hundred miles or so, to the largest city of the province and its capital, Thessalonica. There was a Jewish synagogue in that city, so following his usual practice when he came to a new place, Paul went to the synagogue on the next three Sabbaths and he preached about Jesus being the Christ 
prophesied about in the Jewish scriptures, which we know as the Old Testament. Some of the Jews were persuaded, and they believed that Jesus is the Messiah, as well as many of the Gentile men and women who were there came to faith in Christ. But there was a number of other Jews who were jealous of Paul's quick influence with the people. They wanted to drive him out of the city. So they hired some thugs to form a mob and start a riot. And the riot was so intense, so dangerous, that Paul and his companions had to sneak out of the city under the cover of darkness. After leaving Thessalonica, Paul went further west, about another 40 miles to the city of Berea, and he began preaching there about Jesus. But when the Jews of Thessalonica heard that Paul was at Berea, they went there too, and they turned the crowds against him, forcing him to leave that city. He traveled south then to Athens and then on to Corinth, where he would spend the next year and a half establishing the church there. Several months after being in Corinth, Paul wrote this letter of 1 Thessalonians that we're taking a look at. Well, with that as a background, let's begin reading in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you, but we, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So back up to verse 17, he says, When we were orphaned by being separated from you, Paul is making reference here to when he and those who were with him were forced to leave Thessalonica because of that riot. Paul uses very emotion-laden terminology here to describe what it was like for him to have to leave the believers in Thessalonica. The Greek word literally means to be orphaned. For Paul, it was as if his family was being torn apart when he was forced to leave them. It's interesting to note how many metaphors drawn from the family relationship Paul uses in this letter so far. In verse 2 of chapter, or verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, like young children. And then in verse 7, he says, like a mother. In verse 11, like a father. And now, orphaned. All of these metaphors drawn from family relationship, they help drive home this idea that we have come into this new relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but it has also brought about a new relationship between the people who have come into this new relationship with God through Jesus. We are part of a family. Paul refers to the believers in Thessalonica as brothers and sisters 15 times in this short letter. Again, driving home that idea that those who have entered into this new relationship with God through Jesus are also part of a new family. We are brothers and sisters of one another. God's created a new family for His people to be part of. That family is the church, a place for us to find acceptance, nurturing, security, accountability, guidance, encouragement, love. 
when one follower of Jesus refers to another follower of Jesus as a sister or brother, it's not just a nice cultural reference being made. It's describing a real relationship that exists now between those people. They are really brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, it's important that we take this spiritual reality to heart. Our love and commitment to one another should be like members of the same family. Well, in verse 17 and 18, Paul says, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. He says, we wanted to come to you. He says, we, try, we have been trying again and again. Paul has repeatedly tried to get to Thessalonica to see these people, but he's been prevented from doing so. He says, Satan blocked the way. We're not told how Satan has prevented Paul from returning to Thessalonica. What we do know, though, is that Satan has been actively interfering with what Paul was trying to do. Spiritual forces of evil working against the good that the Lord is seeking to do in our lives is a real thing. C.S. Lewis made the important observation that there are two common errors that people make about Satan. People either believe in the ex- people either don't believe at all in the existence of the devil, which makes it really easy for him to then mess with their lives, or they attribute every difficulty and trouble in their life to the devil, giving him far more credit than he deserves, and they're refusing then to take responsibility for their own sins. Satan is real. He's actively engaged in opposing the good work of God in all kinds of ways. But Satan, he can't be blamed for everything that's wrong in this world and wrong in our lives. We've done a pretty good job on our own of messing things up. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Paul, he writes in Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In verse 19, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions to make the point of how dear these people are to him. Paul's using figurative language here, and I want to make sure that you realize that. He doesn't mean that these believers in Thessalonica are really, literally, his hope, his joy, his glory, his crown. Jesus holds that place in his life, truly. But in a figurative sense... These people mean everything to Paul. He loves them with all of his heart. He misses them terribly. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, he continues this. He says, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. 
For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. So when Paul could stand it no longer, not knowing how the church in Thessalonica was doing, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica on his behalf. Paul himself wasn't able to return to the city. Satan was somehow blocking his return. So he sends his very capable co-worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, Timothy, in his place. Well, what was Timothy's mission? It was a couple of things. One, to strengthen and encourage the Thessalonian believers in their faith. And second, to bring back word to Paul about how they're doing. The believers in Thessalonica, they were suffering under a great deal of persecution for being followers of Jesus. The people behind this persecution was the same group of Jews who, had, who hated Paul so much and had started this mob riot to get him driven out of their city. Well, after getting rid of Paul, they turned all of that hatred towards these believers in Jesus who had embraced this Jesus that Paul has been preaching. They are trying to get these believers to abandon their faith in Jesus. They worked to turn the whole city against the believers. They accused them of being traitors, of defying Caesar's decrees, of following this strange new king, Jesus. The believers were being demonized, marginalized, bullied by the general public. Paul was afraid for these new believers, concerned that they might indeed give up and turn back from following Jesus. He writes in verse 5 here, he says, I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you so that our labors might have been in vain. Trials and difficulties and persecutions can be a tremendous challenge for us, can't they? Intellectually, we might know that our circumstances can't be relied on as evidence of God's love or lack of love for us, but with but when we get hit hard by a significant difficulty or tragedy or pain, emotionally, we begin asking why. We grope for an explanation, a reason. We wonder if God loves us. We want to know what we did to deserve this thing. We feel like it's not fair. We, we begin to wonder if God is even real. His silence is difficult. Even the most seasoned of believers can find themselves struggling when a difficult trial slams into their life without warning. If a person doesn't possess a grounded faith in Jesus and the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit within them to keep them anchored, they can face a real crisis of faith. Extreme difficulty can make or break our faith depending on how we respond to it and how well we are anchored in Christ. This is what concerns Paul regarding these new believers in Thessalonica. He had only been with them a short three weeks. They were just babies in the faith when he was forced to leave them. He wonders how will they respond to the difficulties that are coming against them. 
would they buckle under the pressure? Would they take hold of Jesus even tighter as things got more difficult? Or would they let go of him and return to their old life? Paul reminds them here in verses 3 and 4 that he had told them when he was with them in Thessalonica that trials and difficulties and persecutions would come. He said, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way. So he tried to prepare them for what they would face. Paul warns believers in all of the churches that he worked in, that difficulties and persecutions would come. For example, he even told Timothy in his second letter to him, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A person who chooses to follow and obey Jesus over the accepted attitudes and morals of the surrounding culture will face opposition. It, it was true then. It continues to be true in our own day. The ethics of Jesus create friction. Peter, he also warns believers that persecution was to be expected. In 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus warns us that persecutions are to be expected. In John 15.18, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will also obey yours. Followers of Jesus have suffered very little persecution in this country. But it's not like that in all places of the world. And followers of Jesus have at times throughout history suffered great persecution for their faith. Give thanks to God that we have spa been spared persecution, but be prepared for persecution as his followers too. It is promised to be part of the package. Well, before moving on, Although trials and difficulties and persecution can be a tremendous challenge, they are also ultimately blessings in the life of God's children. Very quickly, Romans 8.18, Paul wrote, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. Where are we told to put our attention when we are in the midst of hard and painful things? On the good the Lord is doing in us through them and on the glorious future that he's preparing for us. Well, going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. 
So rather than Paul's worst fears being realized, Timothy has brought good news back from the Thessalonian church. They're doing great. Rather than the persecutions and other difficulties discouraging them and weakening their faith, they have actually been clinging to Jesus all the more through them. And rather than listening to Paul's critics, questioning his motives and letting the critics turn them against Paul, they have hung on to their pleasant memories of Paul and they long to see him as they long to see as he longs to see them. Verse 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Paul is hugely encouraged to hear how the believers in Thessalonica are doing. He says, now we really live since, we're stand, since you're standing firm in the faith. He can't thank the Lord enough for the joy he has over the wonderful changes that the Lord is doing in these people's lives. Being part of another person coming to faith in the Lord and then seeing them grow, it brings a joy to your heart that's hard to describe. It's such a beautiful, amazing miracle that the Lord does that he lets us see and be a part of. We watch the Lord work on our own life and see that as a tremendous miracle, but there's something uniquely special and profound about seeing the Lord bringing another person to life spiritually, saving them, changing them, making them into a new person. He, he saved me, and that's awesome. But there is another level of awesomeness when we see it happening in someone else. It's like we all of a sudden are struck by that profound reality that it really does work. The Lord really does save people and change lives. Verse 10, it says, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul, he says he prays night and day, again figuratively speaking, that he can see them again and supply what's lacking in their faith or fill in the blanks to round out their learning, to make them complete in their understanding of Christ. And then finally in verse 11 now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones. Paul prays for three things here. First, that the Lord would make it possible for Paul to come and see them. It's interesting that as best as we can determine, the answer to that prayer would not come until about five years later toward the end of Paul's third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20. I think it's a good lesson for us to see that not even the Apostle Paul's prayers were always answered when he wanted them to be. We have a good Father. We need to trust Him. 
Even when we think we have a really good idea, he may have a better idea. We can trust him. The second thing that Paul prays here is that the Lord would make their love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. Jesus said the characteristic that would identify us as his followers would be our love for one another. Notice, too, it says, and for everyone else. I'd like us to pause pause there for just a moment. Our love for one another as believers, it can become exclusionary, self-absorbed. It can turn into all about us. It's important that our love be wide enough, open enough, generous enough, inviting enough that it includes everyone else too, not just our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray that the Lord will increase and overflow our love for each other and also for everyone else. See, the growing of agape love in us, that self-giving love that we see exemplified in Jesus, giving his own life for us, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. This love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, it tells us, a product of the Holy Spirit, an outgrowth of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Lord, grow your love in us so it overflows and it spills out into the lives of everyone that we encounter. The third thing that Paul prays here is that the Lord would strengthen them so they would be found blameless and holy when Jesus comes back. And we certainly pray that for ourselves too. Lord, may we live blameless and holy lives as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Let's bow our heads for a closing prayer before uh, we close in worship. Father, we thank you for these words from 1 Thessalonians that we have read today, and we echo this prayer that Paul had for the folks in Thessalonica, making this a prayer for us too. We pray that love would increase and overflow from our life, Lord, as your Holy Spirit changes us and molds us and fills us, making us a conduit for your love, Lord. And we pray, too, that we would live blameless and holy lives as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Make these things so in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.